This is Gareth Southgate, and this is the Three Lions Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Three Lions Podcast. My name is Russell Osborne and this is an independent England football supporters podcast. Thank you as always for joining me. You have joined me once again as we're learning about another Three Lions Chief in our England Managers series. These come around every so often as I like to try and speak with people who have written about their subject And in order for me to do that as properly as I'd like to, I try and read the book. And as I've mentioned before, I'm not the fastest reader in town, but I'm persistent, if nothing else. Already in this series, we've taken a look at Walter Winterbottom, Alf Ramsey, Don Revy, Ron Greenwood, Bobby Robson. And we also took a little sidestep when we looked at Don Howe. All of those episodes are available at your podcast provider of choice or threelionspodcast.com. Right, let's get on with it. Now, next up in our England Manager series is Graham Taylor, England Manager between 1990 and 1993. He was England's sixth full-time manager. And here to talk more about him is Lionel Burney, ghostwriter of his autobiography, Graham Taylor, In His Own Words. Lionel, hello there. Hello there. Thank you for having me. Thank you for, for joining me. Are you well? I'm very well, thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, when you say that, Graham Taylor is only the sixth man to manage England. And I think that was a real source of pride for him. Uh, only five full-time official England managers had gone before him. And I think, you know, at that time, 1990, the significance of that couldn't be underestimated, really. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, it, now they... Well, managers in in whatever job i guess in premier league or championship or across the world they they don't seem to to last so long but from from walter winterbottom's first placement back in what would it have been the, the mid 50s i think it was to 1990 to only be the sixth one is yeah quite an achievement for for both the the fa and and the people that they put in place indeed yeah and uh, well as we'll no doubt discuss I mean it didn't go entirely to plan for Graham Taylor did it it was a difficult time to take over as manager I think England coming off the back of a semi-final in Italia 90 and the the high of all of that and kind of the you know when you think back to just how important that summer was in the context of English football history I mean really the Premier League was born out of that summer wasn't it the yeah. Gaza's tears and the whole country kind of falling back in love with football again and so I think people expected the England team to go from strength to strength but of course I think there were some pretty good reasons why uh, that didn't happen and and not all of them are totally the responsibility of the manager I don't think but I suppose I ought to you know make my kind of um, friendly bias 
um, you know, uh, acknowledge it right at the outset because I am a Watford supporter. Graham Taylor was a sort of childhood hero of mine because he managed the great Watford team that I uh, first went to watch with my dad. And so I, I, I feel kind of almost protective towards Graham Taylor's legacy, not to the point where I'll defend the sort of indefensible, but um, I do think that, you know, he was a, a, a very decent man, a very dignified man who really was dealt quite a difficult job. And I don't think he realised when he accepted the job just how difficult it was going to turn out to be. Yeah, no, nicely put. Well, I think well you've, you've mentioned Watford there and, and we need to, to speak about Watford to, to get to his part in the the whole England cycle. But I think first, just just so we, we all know sort of where we stand, you you ghost wrote this book um what what is a, a ghostwriter how did that come about well a ghostwriter is somebody who effectively puts into words uh, the, the the thoughts and the stories and the uh you know the, the 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 essence of the subject so basically writing the book for graham uh, you know a, a ghostwriter is a sort of surrogate um, storyteller i guess rather than uh, the um, the actual subject sitting down and, and hitting the keys. Uh, the ghostwriter, certainly in my case, I spent a lot of time with Graham over a, uh, more than a two-year period interviewing him, both formally and informally, about his life and his career and just getting a sense of the story that he wanted to tell so that when it came out, uh, it was the book that he wanted uh, to show the world. Of course, um, Graham died before the book was actually published. Um, we'd finished the, the great majority, the real bulk of all of the interviewing process, and I was well through uh, writing the first draft when he passed away in January 2017. So the book was then completed without him, but with the blessing of his widow, Rita, and, and family, and his longtime agent and friend, a man called Ian Wilson, who had been instrumental in helping me uh, you know, get the book to the point that we got it to. And then obviously it became a really different job once Graham had passed away because the, you know, not that there was any less responsibility to accurately convey, uh, you know, what Graham wanted when he was alive, but without him here to kind of bounce off and double check and just, you know, make sure that it was going in the direction he wanted. I had to rely on a few other people just to make sure that, that the book was the reflection of his life and career that he had envisaged when we set out on the journey. And so, it was a real challenge as a journalist because, you know, as a journalist, you want to tell the best stories you possibly can um, in in the most dynamic way you possibly can. But I was very aware once he passed away that, um, you know, this this book was the story of, of his life and that he wasn't going to be here, unfortunately, um, to kind of, you know, breathe life to those stories once the book was published in the normal way, because, they, you know, had he been alive, there would have been a whole round of TV and uh, radio interviews and, and he, he probably would have done podcasts like this uh, in my place. You know, the ghostwriter is supposed to be, you know, behind the curtain, in the shadows, anonymous. It's not my voice. Um, you know, and I suppose the biggest challenge was just trying to make sure that the story was Graham Taylor in his own words. And, uh, yeah, hopefully um, people felt that that was what I managed to, to achieve. Certainly his his widow Rita and, and um Ian Wilson were were happy with with um, the end result, but the fact that Graham wasn't here to to see it, um, you know, actually as a, a physical book was—I mean, that was really a tough period. 
Yeah, I can well imagine. You mentioned there that you, you, obviously the aim is to make sure it it's not your voice. Um, and as soon as I opened the book and started reading it, I, I met Graham once in in Ukraine, actually, of all places, on a uh, on an England journey, and I could really feel his voice telling the story right from the uh, those opening few pages. So I I think. I, the book in his own words it it really does come across as in his own words well thank you for that i mean he he had a very distinct way of expressing himself didn't he yeah. almost to almost to the point of caricature you know i mean obviously we may get on to the the documentary and and those those phrases that became catchphrases that almost haunted him really or they certainly followed him around didn't they can yeah. we not knock it and yeah you know, you know, hit layers hit layers you know and and <laughs> I mean, he, even when talking sort of informally, he had little phrases. I almost thought it was like a sort of, um, I don't know, like a lead guitarist. You know, you, you kind of sort of hear these little familiar refrains um, in some of the phrases that he would use. And I suppose the, the biggest thing for me was to make sure that his voice didn't stray over the line into caricature and that it stayed a kind of authentic, serious uh, Graham Taylor voice without becoming almost a sort of spitting image puppet version of his voice. And I suppose as we went on and and also once he passed away and he wasn't there to kind of call and just, you know, go through a couple of points and just just bring that voice back to the forefront of my mind, it, mm. it became harder to kind of just, uh, I guess, keep that voice alive. But, yeah, it was a, it was a you know an, an incredible project to have worked on especially the way it turned out and um whilst i had some misgivings at the time uh, you know am, are we doing the right thing pushing on with this i'm really really glad that we did and that, that we got it out and that the hardback edition exists and and that's there to tell the story of his life and career yeah absolutely well well let's get on to his life his career and and take it up to that that england time he was born the the 15th of september 1944 grew up in in the scunthorpe area um and what i what i found um was was quite interesting that his his father was was a journalist so he really had right at the very beginning an insight into that journalist side of things that he would famously encounter later on in his life yeah that's right his dad was a sports writer for the local paper in scunthorpe and he covered uh, um the the local football team scunthorpe united of course and and other sports you know in the the old tradition of a local newspaper man when you know that was a, a you know a, a really decent job you know it was an in, in an era where not everyone aspired to you know perhaps go off to fleet street you could make a good living as a local newspaper man and his father was well respected and so graham was sort of in and around newspapers from a young age you know he knew the inside of the press box at uh, scunthorpe's ground and uh, you know he used to go down to the office where the paper you know they had a press in in the office at the even telegraph i think it was the right. newspaper and um you know so he, he very very early on he would you know perhaps sit with his dad in the press box or you know, watch the Scunthorpe game from the terraces and then meet up with his dad and then they'd go down to the office in time for that Saturday evening paper to come rolling off the presses and and uh, and, and and he'd see, you know, the words that his dad had, had written uh, in print in time for Saturday tea time, you know, which, I mean, again, 
that we're talking about an era here, aren't we? And yeah. now, now that sounds almost quaint, doesn't it? But <laughs> back then, back then that must have been really quite magical. Um, but just not to skip forward, but I do think that Graham did understand journalism and he understood journalists. And I think he tried to use that as a strength in his time as England manager. And I think perhaps it wasn't the strength that he thought it was because he couldn't get everybody on side all at once going in the same direction because the national newspaper journalists, you know, not just the rivalries between the daily papers, but the rivalries sometimes between a Sunday paper and the, the, the daily sort yeah. of cousin you know, would be so intense that everybody wanted their piece of the England manager. And, and, and if if they felt that he was, you know, telling somebody something and somebody else something different or, you know, Graham tried to get them all together and get them all on side, not realising that, you know, Fleet Street at that time was big. It was powerful. There were rivalries within the, 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 the ranks of the journalists. And, you know, perhaps he tried a little bit too hard to be on their side and, uh, and, and, and give them what he thought they wanted. But, you know, we can we can come on to that. But I do think it's interesting that, you know, Graham's world, uh, you know, his, his, his entire football career was definitely informed by an ability to communicate with um, with journalists and understanding that by communicating with journalists, you were communicating to the wider public. In the case of a club manager, that's your own team supporters. And you can, in a way, you know, use the media um, to convey what you want to get across and, and explain situations and, and keep supporters supporting the team. Yeah, which um, he he very much done when he became manager at, at Watford is is the way I understood it. But before he got there, as a player, whilst he he grew up in Scunthorpe, he signed for Grimsby. Um, I think I don't know if they're actually technically classed as rivals, Scunthorpe and Grimsby, but there's certainly not a um, a, a huge difference between them. Uh, he became captain of Grimsby there. And uh, and eventually transferred to Lincoln City. He it, it's not the the football career of maybe an England manager you would immediately think would have um, the likes of say Bobby Robson um, before mm. him was was maybe a, a little more prolific had, had actually played for England. And when you look at England managers now, they've got the the England history behind them. But but no, Graham was was playing for for the likes of Grimsby and Lincoln. Yeah, I think that was always held against him a bit when he was um, England manager, wasn't it? The, the fact that he hadn't played at the top level. I mean, when you look at football now, I mean, you can name a lot of managers who have not been excellent players. I mean, Arsene Wenger, uh, Jose Mourinho, just to name a couple who have yeah. had an incredible impact on English football. But, uh, I mean, Graham was a decent footballer. I mean, he, uh, he always kind of resented being described as a fullback because he had started his kind of you know junior football career as an inside forward he was the kind of the prolific goal scorer he was the kid who you know scored all the goals in the school team in the district team and then the next level up you know and, and he went through every you know promotion through sort of junior football being the star player and it wasn't until yeah he got to Grimsby and didn't make perhaps the impact that he'd hoped and, and he got kind of shoved into a fullback position in a uh, an FA Youth Cup tie for Grimsby and and the manager at the time decided well you know that's your position and it kind of stuck and he wanted to make a career in the game and he had an eye on management even as a very young player i mean he qualified as an FA coach when he was still 21 
And he did that because a few people around him, you know, I think maybe recognized something about his his personality, about his kind of diligence, I guess, and about the way he thought about the game, talked to people about the game. Uh, he clearly wanted to make a career in it. And he knew that as a player, especially a player in the, in the 60s, you know, a, a bad tackle could end a playing career, you know, very easily. And then what? You know, then it's off to work, isn't it? And yeah. he had kind of he had kind of made this decision to go into football as a grammar school boy you know, I don't think the school that he uh, had gone to in Scunthorpe, I don't think they were terribly chuffed that he turned his back on, you know, what should have been perhaps a sort of go down a more academic route. So he, yeah. did, he was sort of going out on a limb a little bit into the world of football and he wanted to make it work and he wanted to make it work for a lifetime, not just as a player. And uh, I think that says a lot about him um, anyway. And basically exactly what he thought might happen did happen because he did sustain a, an injury. Um, you know, it wasn't a, a bad challenge. It was a sort of just a landing. And I think he's, you know, uh, various times he said he hurt his hip or he hurt his knee and he, he always had problems down one side and he just never quite got right. And, you know, the, the medical support and the physio, uh, physiotherapy support back then was not the same as it is now. And so, you know, he was always playing with a, with a bit of a, um, bit of a problem. And, um, well, he got his chance in management at Lincoln City when he was just 28, which, yeah. you know, is, I mean, even then that was, uh, well, then certainly it was unusual. Management Managers were senior people then, weren't they? I mean, it wasn't unusual yeah. for managers to go on into their, you know, mid to late 60s uh, at that time. So being a 28-year-old and being younger than some of his players, um, yeah. I think, I think that was uh, quite a baptism of fire for him at Lincoln. Yeah, that's right. He he replaced the the manager David Hurd, uh, who was manager of Lincoln at the time. Now he, by all accounts, was commuting from Manchester, and and I got the impression that that Graham wasn't overly keen on his that um, the the commuting from Manchester, and also his sort of ideology and and he just his he thought that this David heard his heart wasn't in it um mm. so he he was quite happy to to take this role on and to the point where he would always want his players to remain local he didn't want players traveling that sort of distance um to their club um on a, a daily basis um but in doing so as you say he became became a, the youngest manager in the football league but it it wasn't easy for him uh, no wins in 11 to start with no that's right i mean oh. just on that i mean david hurd was a was a you know a, a really uh, top level footballer i think he played you know 150 odd games for arsenal he played a couple of hundred games for manchester united you know he'd been teammates with best law and charlton and i think the thing that graham recognized as a lower division player with a squad of lower division players was that David Hurd was clearly better than some of the players that he uh, he was working with. And I, there's one little story that Graham said about sort of training. It didn't feel like Hurd was imparting any real kind of knowledge. He wasn't teaching lower division players how to get better. He would just say, well, when we get a throw in, you know, Paddy Crerand would throw it to, uh, you know, Bobby Charlton and Bobby Charlton would knock it on to Dennis Law and then we'd, we'd go in behind. It's like, well, we haven't got anyone here who is, you know, even Paddy Kerr and let alone yeah. Bobby Charlton and Dennis Law. And, and I think Graham recognised that management was about getting the very best out of 
whatever you've got available and then identifying improvements to the squad uh, when you know you recognize that certain players could be no, improved no more but like you say no wins in 11 but he was very lucky that the chairman and the real kind of driving force of Lincoln City at that time a man called Henage Dove was building a community club wanted somebody to make the team successful and uh, he, he recognised something in Graham and, and gave him a lot of space to really um, create a football club and a football team. And all of the community work and the kind of the, the, the getting the supporters on side that he later did to great, great effect at Watford, he'd already done at Lincoln City. And he was really keen, you know, as I was a Watford supporter when we were working together, he, was, he didn't want the impression to be that he only did this stuff when he was at Watford without John's money. He'd done the, he'd done the kind of... Uh, the, the thing of trying to build a club, build a team, you know, get people through the turnstiles and, and create a sense of excitement with attacking football because, you know, Lincoln, uh, I think they probably still do hold the record points tally for a, a football league season. I mean, it might now be beaten by, you know, Manchester City, but in the old days of two points for a win, if you, if you translate it, I mean, they were, you know, they were an extremely good fourth division football side and uh, they scored a heck of a lot of goals and really, that Lincoln side in the, uh, towards the end of the 70s was a kind of the blueprint of what Graham Taylor thought football was about. And that was attacking, trying to win, trying to excite people who came to watch the team. He eventually sort of turned it round for Lincoln. He, he got them promoted um, and, and in turn got himself noticed um, because it was then that the sort of a, a first England connection sort of arose as, as, <laughs> as, as manager of Lincoln he was he was called by the the then manager Don Revy um, who I think did he he'd got a message to call him um, mm. and he was a little bit whoa, whoa hello what, what's all this about um, and it certainly wasn't what that came out of the conversation which was the the offer of sort of the Watford job well, not quite the offer, was it? But uh, no. no, I mean, Don, Don Revy, I mean, managerial, um, you know, superstar, wasn't he? That Leeds United team was yeah. OK, um, you know, not popular with everybody, but no one could dispute that that was an, an extremely good team. And Don Revy was a, 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 an excellent manager. Obviously, you know, his time at England was, uh, was was fairly controversial, wasn't it? But at that time, as the England manager, for Graham Taylor to get a call at home and a message saying uh, oh, Don Revy's called for you, uh, you're thinking, well, what on earth can this be? <laughs> and then uh, Revy said, oh, are you under contract at Lincoln? And, and Graham had signed a contract at Lincoln. So he's like, well, yes, yes, I am. But, you know, there is a there is a clause. Uh, he said, well, you know, investigate that clause because I, there's a club that's interested in you. Oh, yeah, who's that? And Graham, you know, thinking, well, all right, it might not be Arsenal or Tottenham, but it might be somebody, uh, you know, in the, in the first division. Uh, Don Revy said, well, I've had Elton John at Watford on the phone. And, and Graham was quite open. He didn't, I mean, he knew the name Elton John, but he didn't really know. He wasn't a fan of Elton's music. You know, he, he, he was just, well, Watford, you know, well, we, we're there in the fourth division. I'm at Lincoln, who are in the third division. Why on earth would I want to drop back down there and, you know, start again? And so he felt almost like, you know, he puffed himself up for this call with the England manager and then he'd been sort of felt pretty deflated that, uh, you know, Don Revy hadn't you know, thought of, you know, it wasn't ringing with a kind of much better um, news or, you know, that he'd recommended him perhaps for a, for a big job. 
But as it turned out, Graham went to meet Elton John and Elton was wealthy, a passionate Watford supporter. He'd, he'd supported the club since he was a boy. He had uh, joined the board a few years earlier and by this stage he had taken over as chairman and was you know, basically in charge of the club. But he was in charge in a slightly directionless way. And a couple of the directors at Watford had, um, you know, they had put Graham Taylor's name in the frame. For, for the job, but Elton had been sort of swayed perhaps by the star quality of uh, of Bobby Moore and had actually interviewed Bobby Moore and I believe had offered Bobby Moore the job and, or, or said, look, the job's yours if you want it. And, uh, you know, ex-England captain, you know, World Cup winner, Bobby Moore, yeah. that would have been a heck of a coup for Watford, but a couple of the Watford directors were not all that sure because they thought, look, we're in the fourth division. We need somebody who knows this division. They'd been very impressed with the Lincoln team. They'd met Graham in, uh, you know, for a cup of tea after Lincoln had taken Watford apart um, a season or two previously. And uh, they they really hammered away at Elton and said, look, you've got to at least consider Graham Taylor. So when Elton spoke to Don Revy and, and said, uh, what about Graham Taylor? Uh, Don Revy said, yeah, you know, good, good, promising young manager has done a good job at Lincoln. Why why not have a chat with him? So uh, all of these kind of stars sort of aligned. And when Elton and Graham met at Elton's house in Windsor, you know, Graham was just like, well, yeah, rock star chairman, you know, million quids worth of art, probably hanging on the walls and, and sitting in the corridors. This is this is quite an eccentric, flamboyant character. What does he really know about football? And uh, he said, well, what do you want to achieve? And Elton said, well, I want to I want to get to the first division. I want to play in Europe and I want to play in an FA Cup final. And Graham was like, well, that's, you know, that's madness. That's <laughs> madness. And he said, well, OK, let's uh, let's think about this. How much do you think this is going to cost? And um, and Elton said, well, you tell me what do you think it's going to cost? And Elton uh, and Graham thought, well, I'll really. I'm really shocking here. I said, I don't think you'll get much change out on a million quid. And Elton said, great, let's give it a go then. <laughs> and uh, and that was the start of a 10-year journey. And you know what? Watford reached first division. They were runners-up to Liverpool in 1983. They played in the UEFA Cup, which is uh, the the old olden days version of the Europa League. And they reached an FA Cup final, which sadly they didn't win. They lost 2-0 to Everton in 1984. But I mean, the Elton and Graham story was was remarkable. The rise through the leagues, you know, I suppose Wimbledon kind of outdid them in a sense because Wimbledon did win the FA Cup final that they got to. But I mean, for me, certainly the, the, the Elton and Graham journey was kind of the romantic story of the 1980s in English football. Yeah. I mean, you, you say um, he, he bought this, he had this community spirit at Lincoln, um, which then he, he wanted to to bring to Watford and and he went round sort of schools and, and took the players along along to schools. Uh, he he encouraged the supporters club. He gave it that community feel. He uh, he was one of the first Watford or one of the first clubs to have uh, an electronic scoreboard. He had a mm. had a hand in lots of little things in and around Watford and, and Vicarage Road. And and I think there was there was another story there where. I haven't made a note of this one, but it's, I've just come to mind where there was, was there someone else using Vicarage Road? And yeah, well, <laughs> the local Greyhound Association had a, had a contract to, um, to to run Greyhound racing around the sort of cinder track uh, that went round the pitch. And um, at that time, 
you know, the Greyhound people had the stadium on, I don't know, Wednesday afternoons and Friday nights and Monday nights or whatever it was. And it meant that they couldn't train on the pitch there. It, it meant that the Vicarage Road Stadium wasn't really Watford's. And uh, I think, I mean, I know this is probably a slightly exaggerated story, but it's one that Graham loved to tell. And it, it is a funny one. But uh, one day they were at the stadium and he he tried to get into the physio's room and the door was wedged shut and he yeah. bar- barged in. And, uh, you know, and, and the, the first team physio was, you know, basically had a greyhound up on the, on the, um, on the treatment table and, you know, sort of checking out its back legs. And, <laughs> and Graham was like, what, what's going on here? And the physio said, oh, I think he's just tweaked something, Gaffer. You know, I mean, OK, probably a slightly invented story, but it, it, it paints a picture of a football club that wasn't all that serious. And Graham went to Elton and said, this is very early on. You know, we're talking a matter of weeks. He said, look, this is ridiculous. Either the dogs go or I go. And, um, uh, you know, Graham, he'd taken the job on the basis that he was going to manage the football club, not just the football team. And, yeah, he took an interest in everything. You know, the, the, the training uh, facilities were improved. The youth setup was was developed. The scouting network was completely overhauled and improved. You know, but he had a say in everything. You know, what colour the woodwork was in, uh, you know, in the offices and stuff. You know, uh, he he was he ran the club from top to bottom at a time when being a football manager could encompass all of those things. And yeah, he he did everything. He and and he recognised that. In order to be successful, they had to attract supporters. And being a fourth division club in a sort of suburban town without any real footballing pedigree, like Watford, just a kind of sleepy Hertfordshire town it was at the time, needed to get fans through the door. And he knew that there was a huge potential in attracting families and children. And the club did have a family um, sort of spirit and a, and a family identity. Uh, Graham Taylor ran the London Marathon in 1983 to raise money to build a, a sort of terrace that was specifically for uh, children and families to stand on, so that they would they would have a kind of a, a safe, welcoming, friendly environment without bad language um, to watch the games. And all of that work, I think, laid the groundwork for for a club that now is. You know, established as a sort of top 30 club in England, where really by rights they're kind of a lower division club. Uh, you know, when you look at the sort of you know, when they first got in the Football League in, in you know, 1920 or whenever it was through to the 60s, they were really a third or fourth division club. Yeah. Well, as you mentioned, the, he went on to achieve all those goals and targets that, that Elton John set him and, and they worked together to do that. And they finished second. And just as um, he had done at Lincoln, he was turning heads of other people to look at him. It was then that the then England manager, Bobby Robson, uh, he brought Graham into the England fold as the under 18 youth team manager. So he's he's sort of getting his England experience quite early then. Yeah, I mean, he was always sort of... A, a, kind of a football association establishment figure because he was, you know, he wasn't a controversial man, Graham. He was a disciplinarian. He, you know, he spoke very well. You know, he, he had standards. He, you know, he, uh, you know, he fitted in, his face fitted in with, with the FA at that time. And yes, he, he was manager of the under 18 team for a, a European championships. I mean, 
back in those days, I think it may even have been an annual tournament, but I mean, he was in charge of that squad for a tournament that was played at home. And I think some of the matches actually were played at Vicarage Road. Um, But yeah, he was, he kind of, his face always fitted in with the FA. He would have thought, even from that period of time, we're talking 83, I think that was, that, you know, he was on the right trajectory to have a shot at the England manager uh, position if... You know, he knew he wasn't going to be appointed England manager from from Watford. You know, he knew that you had to be at a bigger club in order to uh, prove that that you know the managerial credentials and and to really be taken seriously as a contender uh, when the job eventually came up. But yeah, I think he was, um, you know, he was he was certainly someone that was trusted by the FA and by the kind of the England hierarchy just because of the, the type of person he was, as much as his managerial skills. Yeah. Well, you mentioned a bigger club, and, and with the greatest of respect to Watford, after what he had achieved there, he, he felt it was time to move on. And Aston Villa was his destination, who at the time were a uh, were a second division side. Uh, he'd got the the call or, or however to go and, and have a look around there and, and meet deadly Doug Ellis, uh, chairman back then. But despite sort of Aston Villa having that sort of status as they'd been European champions, I think, previously, he wasn't overly impressed straight away. No, I mean, he built Watford up in the season that he left Watford. So 1986-87, Watford finished ninth in the first division, which was their second highest position uh, after that. Uh, runners-up position in 1983. Uh, you know, they've been solidly mid-table every season that they've been in the top flight, other than the, the year they were second. They were a good cup team. That season, 86-87, they got to the semi-final of the FA Cup, played at Villa Park, coincidentally, against Tottenham Hotspur. Uh, didn't have much luck in the semi-final because both uh, goalkeepers, the first-team goalkeeper, Tony Coton and the reserve, Steve Sherwood, were both injured. Well, it's an infamous story for Watford supporters because... Because of the, the transfer deadline having passed and because of the FA Cup rules, you couldn't pick anyone on loan who had played in the competition. They really had no goalkeeper. And the choice was between a 16-year-old David James, who was on the club's books and was the youth team goalkeeper at the time. And in the end, it came down to uh, Gary Plumley, who was a goalkeeper who had played for Cardiff City, played for Newport County. Uh, he'd actually played in the Cup Winners' Cup for Newport County, but he was also Watford's chief executive's son. Yeah. And um, Graham always said there was no way he was going to expose a 16-year-old, and only just a 16-year-old at that, I think, David James. You know, a very young kid. He was never going to expose a kid like that to an FA Cup semi-final, uh, you know, in front of 45,000 people and, and what have you. So they really were hamstrung, and uh, they went for Gary Plumley. And uh, he sort of came out of retirement. He was running, you know, a wine bar slash restaurant down in South Wales at the time. And uh, uh, so, you know, it was kind of a bit of a bit of a joke story, a tabloid story that the wine bar waiter was coming out of retirement to to play in goal in an FA Cup semi-final. It didn't go very well. Watford lost 4-1. And Graham sort of bore the brunt of the kind of the, the fans' backlash and disappointment at that. And I think he recognised that Elton John's kind of enthusiasm and drive had waned. Again, without getting into the ins and outs of Elton John's life, um, you know, the, the mid-80s were a difficult time for him. You know, his marriage had broken up. Uh, he was just, he was tabloid fodder, Elton mm-hmm. John. You know, he took an absolute kicking from the sun 
you know, their coverage was appalling. When you look back, even by the standards of the day, it was appalling. But when you look back now, it was, it was really, really vicious, um, unpleasant coverage of Elton John's um, private life. Um, we all know Elton's, uh, you know, he's on the record talking about his, his troubles with drugs and alcohol. And um, I think the, the football club was becoming an expensive you know, unwelcome diversion, whereas previously it had been the kind of saviour of Elton John. Again, he's he's talked about that, how the having the club to focus on really kept him on the straight and narrow for a period of time. And and his friendship with Graham kept him on the straight and narrow. But um yeah, it came to sort of April, May eighty seven through the sort of back channel communication, it had been made known to Graham that, that Aston Villa would be interested if he was interested. And uh, at a board meeting Right after the end of the season, I think they played the final league game of that season a couple of days before. They had a board meeting at Vicarage Road and Graham just said, look, an offer has been made or an approach has been made by Aston Villa. You know, And, and what he was really saying was he, he wanted the, the chairman and owner, Elton John, and the board of directors to say, no, you mustn't go. You know, We want you here. But there was just a kind of a, a muted sort right. of feeling. And, you know, Graham talked about that. You know, had he he'd done ten years, he'd become incredibly powerful at the club. He ran everything, you know, he did everything. And maybe there were one or two people who thought, oh, perhaps it's time for a change. Um, and and Graham kind of thought, yeah, perhaps it is time for a change. And uh, again, you know, it wasn't an easy change. It wasn't like he was going into a you know really top job. Aston Villa had just been relegated to the second division, and as you say, when he got there. He thought, blimey, this is a massive club with a huge ground that hosts the FA Cup semi-final pretty much every year. And yet the place is just, you know, run down, really, falling to bits. There's no standards here. Um, And he went through that club and he basically imposed his way on it very, very quickly and uh, got them promoted. Only just, you know, it was was not easy, but he, he, he built a team that that could get out of the second division. And then, of course, he worked his Graham Taylor magic because <laughs> they then finished second to Liverpool the very next... Uh, and no, it wasn't the very next season because they had a real brush with relegation, actually, in between. So he kept them up and then led them to uh, second place in the first division behind Liverpool. And, you know, but for maybe one or two signings towards the end of that season, uh, 89-90, you know, they might have run Liverpool even closer to that title. But, uh, no, he kind of was the... He was just a a brilliant club manager. And I think proving it at three clubs in a row over what we're talking now, we're talking at least a 15 year period, you know, barely put a foot wrong in 15 years of club management. And, uh, uh, you know, I think when people say, well, how, why did Graham Taylor get the England job? I think that's got a lot to do with it. Yeah. It's, it's just such a shame when you see what, what he done as a, a club manager that he just didn't get over the line and get his hands on that first division trophy um because hmm. that would have been a great picture but yeah it was whilst at villa bobby robson um he'd appointed him previously as like under 18 but now he'd, he'd sort of promoted him to be manager um so he was he was getting closer to that position of of england senior manager and and it was then let's say 1990 when um italia 90 had finished that bobby robson moved on and and there was a uh, an England manager's position up for grabs, but uh, it wasn't clear cut initially. I think because obviously there was Brian Clough was around and and Howard Kendall of Everton. Yeah, I think 
I mean, Graham, uh, he's, again, he's sort of said that the, the, the race for the England manager's position was kind of happening in, you know, two lanes, really. There was a kind of the public lane and the private lane. Um, I think it was known within the game a lot sooner that Bobby Robson was going to go. I think, uh, you know, even the public knew uh, by the time the World Cup was underway that Robson had, had said that this, you know, I'm, I'm done with this. And of course, then uh, they reached the semi-final. Um, you know, I mean, it was a, it was a really good, you know, World Cup performance. That I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't flashy and flamboyant by any stretch, but they got the results when they needed them. You know, the last minute David Platt goal against Belgium in the second round, last minute of extra time. Of yeah. course, you know, but it, it, you know, Bobby Robson had experienced just the, about the worst that the England manager's job could throw at a person. You know, uh, how he survived after Euro '88, really, I don't, I don't know. Um, I mean, the press were absolutely out for him, weren't they? I, I, I wonder whether actually there were people, you know, there weren't enough candidates who wanted to take it on, given, um, given the treatment that that Bobby Robson had had. But uh, he, yeah, he got. He experienced the best of what the England manager's job can be in 1990, or very nearly the best. I mean, they obviously didn't reach the final, but um, they came home as heroes, didn't they? And of course, Graham had seen this at close quarters because he was working as a journalist for, I think, the Times. I'm pretty sure it was the Times he was writing for. And he was writing a kind of a column every couple of days, not just about England, but about, you know, the other matches that, that he was he was at. And uh, he was really soaking up what an international tournament is like from the, the media side of the fence. And, and I think it was at that, while that was all going on, the World Cup was going on and, and you know, whispers and rumours and people talk to people. I think he got the sense that he was very much in the frame for the, the job. And, um, you know, yeah, Brian Clough, you know, the press would have been, uh, you know, calling for somebody like Brian Clough simply because of his record as Nottingham Forest manager, which was a- incredible. But of course, we know Brian Clough had had a difficult relationship with the FA. And whilst I'm not saying that Graham Taylor was a yes man and Brian Clough wasn't, Graham Taylor's face fitted much more than Brian Clough's. You know, I think we've got to be clear about that. I think Howard Kendall as well, you know, excellent uh, club manager, won the league with Everton. But I think there were some question marks about him being the England manager that, that perhaps weren't necessarily football related. I think, you know, when you look around at the other candidates, I know Joe Royal was another one. Again, he would have been at the, that time would have been more of a surprise, I think, than Graham Taylor. Graham Taylor had just had the best managerial season of any English manager. You know, the, the league was won by Liverpool, whose manager was, um, correct me if I'm wrong, it was Kenny Dalglish. I Scottish. believe he would have been, yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, perhaps not as controversial, not as not as much of a surprise as people perhaps look back at and think, well, you know, I think it was a fairly logical appointment. The other one, Terry Venables, I think probably would have taken it. But again, he wasn't, you know, it took a lot of press pressure to get Venables on the shortlist in uh, in 94 when he eventually did take over after Graham had um, had, had gone. So, um, you know, the FA is a funny organisation. Certainly it was back then, wasn't it? Um, yeah. You know, they don't necessarily make the the, the choice based just upon just upon the, the results, just upon, you know, the, the managerial reputation. I think there is an element of kind of, uh, you know, diplomacy, representing the, the country, representing the FA. 
um, at home and abroad. And like I say, I mean, Graham Taylor was as you know straight and upstanding as they come, and uh, you know he made no um, secret of the fact that if he was offered the job, he would he would take it, come what may. Yeah, he was he was 45 when he when he was appointed, and it, it was one of his proudest moments. Although when he got there and and got to the wherever the FA headquarters would have been at the time, realised that well realised very quickly that there was no daily training, no sort of communication with the players on a on a regular basis. Um, games were obviously every other month, every two months um so it was a a totally different learning experience for him yeah i mean he would have known that but i think it it still um still surprised him uh it was lancaster gate was where the was based at, uh, based at the time and he had an office there of course as, as uh, uh, england manager and he had a secretary and you know he went there for work and you know he commuted down and he sometimes stayed down and he but he didn't have that day-to-day involvement as a club manager, a workaholic club manager, let's face it, you know, who was over every detail of everything, as, as I've said. Um, and the England job just didn't work like that. And so he tried to make it um, similar. You know, he made appointments to go and see every first division club and a good deal of clubs in the second division. And, uh, you know, Glasgow Rangers up in Scotland as well, because they had a few English yeah. players at the time. You know, and, and, and Marseille to go and see Chris Waddle and, and Italy to go and see you know David Platt once he got there. And, and you know, he, had to, he wanted to build relationships with all the players. And he actually, you know, wrote to the clubs and said, look, I'd like to come and observe training. I'll, I'll take a session or two if you want. You know, he was trying to keep his hands, you know, his hands dirty, I guess is, is the phrase, isn't it? You know, he's trying to keep uh, his sleeves rolled up and keep the tracksuit on and keep working with players because... You know, international football then, let's remember, is was different to how it is now. There wasn't the kind of the international break. You know, most international friendlies or um, qualifier matches were just on a Wednesday night in between two full league programmes. So the, the managers, the squad didn't get together for an extended period. They'd sometimes get together. You know, he, Graham would try to get the squad together as soon as possible on the sort of you know Saturday night or Sunday after the league matches. And then he'd have them till really Wednesday night. They'd start going home again, back to their clubs to be back training on Thursday for uh, the weekend's fixtures. So he found the rhythm of that really a total change to what he was used to. And he he made no bones about it. He didn't really enjoy it. He didn't enjoy the fact that there wasn't as much football related work to do. There was there was a lot of kind of you know, talking about things and planning the future and looking at, you know, when we, you know, I don't know, we're going to Turkey, we're playing in Izmir or wherever, um, you know, which which hotel are we going to go to, this one or this one? And, and making decisions as a club manager, he would just, you know, really would have been just kind of something to decide, move on and get back to the training pitch or get back to looking for players to, um, you know, going and watching opposition or whatever. Um, it, all of that was stripped right back and it, the rhythm of the, the working week and the working month was, was a lot emptier, I think. And so that magnified, I guess, the pressure on each individual match. And it reduced, certainly reduced the time that he got to work with a group of players and, you know, try to embed some of his ideas. You know, there's so many differences about international management that until speaking to Graham at length about this, I, I hadn't really appreciated. But, you know, putting together all of the best players in the country 
particularly back then when there was a bit more kind of tactical diversity amongst the first division teams. I mean, these days, a lot of the players that play for the top clubs, you know, they all kind of play the same way, don't they, really? Yes. You know, the, 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 the game is a lot more sort of homogenous, really, now. And, of course, you can watch so much more of it. So everyone's kind of aware of how the game is being played. But back then, you know, he'd have... I don't know, two players from Arsenal and two, you know, one from Nottingham Forest and one from, I don't know, Leeds to make a back four out of. And they're all used to doing something different, you know, even down to kind of the cliche thing of the Arsenal players want to push up and play offside and the other two don't, you know, trying to make the team play the way, one way, the way he wanted to play. You know, I think a lot of the sort of, that the control he had at club level where his way was, the you know, there was one way, and you either followed the line or you didn't because you were out the team. It, it wasn't possible to do that at international level because not that players were undroppable, but it's it is a lot harder to say right. You know, two or three of the best players aren't going to be in the in the lineup because they're just not going to play my way. So he's always kind of wrestling um, those things, trying to create a team that fitted his identity from what was clearly a much more talented group than he'd been used to working with before um, but all players that had their own ideas their own ways of doing things yeah well he got his first game under his belt which was a a friendly 1-0 win over Hungary which was then followed by a 2-0 European Championships qualifying win over Poland which of course Euro 92 that was the the next aim for the uh, for the England team they eventually made it to to Sweden um, and Euro 92, but everything then just seemed to to conspire to go against him with with injuries and uh, various events. Uh, John Barnes, who he'd, he'd known way back from from his Watford time, uh, Mark Wright, Lee Dixon, Rob Jones, all these players that he'd had throughout the qualifying campaign were were all of a sudden injured. Yeah, I mean, you know, when you look at the first year of Graham's time as England manager, you know, they he was unbeaten in that first year. You know, the first defeat came at the start of the second season. They lost at home to Germany in a in a friendly uh, 1-0. But yeah, he, when he got to the the finals uh, of the Euros, you know, again, it was a small tournament, wasn't it? Only eight teams qualified. That's right. So you you basically had to, well, you, I mean, you always have to finish top two in the group um, to advance to the semi-finals. Or, or to the next round, sorry, but but I think the eight team you know format it, it did mean that there wasn't there wasn't a kind of weak side in the tournament. I suppose the weakest side in the tournament was Denmark, who <laughs> on, on paper who hadn't actually qualified, had they? They were called no. up, famously called up off the beach, um, and they they replaced uh, they replaced Yugoslavia, who of course were were unable to uh, take part in the tournament. And then when they didn't beat Denmark. It was a nil-nil draw. You know, suddenly the pressure's on against France. Okay, not the France of of 98, but still a a good side. Another nil-nil draw. I think Stuart Pearce hit the bar in that game, but, you know, not a lot to to really write home about. And then it all hinged on that game against Sweden. You know, from a a really good position, uh, they they kind of collapsed. And um, it was, well, that that was the... The, the kind of the beginning of the really difficult relationship that Graham had with the particularly the tabloid newspapers. It was uh, Swedes two, Turnips one, wasn't it? Um, yeah. The headline on the Sun. 
with uh, I mean, it, we, our memories kind of deceive us. It, the, the turnip picture wasn't until the next day or, you know, a couple of days later. But, you know, they, the sun had really gone and run with this. And, uh, it, you know, it did capture the public's imagination, didn't it? But I have to say, yes, he was very, very unlucky with injuries. You know, he had Gary Lineker, who was obviously going to retire at the end of the tournament. But he was not the Lineker of even two years before Lineker had missed that penalty against Brazil in the friendly yeah. um, a couple of weeks before the tournament started, trying to do the Penenka. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had the chance at the time to, to uh, equal and overtake Bobby Charlton's goal-scoring record and, and kind of blew it with that. Of course, the controversial moment was substituting Lineker, who was the captain, of course, in that game against Sweden. And, and not just uh, the decision to substitute him, which you know you could justify on the basis of the the, the performance that Lineker had put in that night against Sweden, but bringing on Alan Smith, you know, it all fed into this narrative that Graham Taylor, when when put under pressure and everything was going against him, you know, he was a long ball merchant and he just wanted to thump it long. And I have to say, just for context, really, and just to remind myself. I watched as much footage of, of those three games as I could find and, and frankly could stomach <laughs> on YouTube. And I mean, it is it is dreadful stuff. It is dreadful stuff, even by kind of 90 standards and, you know, not, not to malign Scandinavian pitches yeah. um, in summer. But, you know, they, they weren't the best surfaces, uh, as we saw. I mean, Barnes was injured playing in a, a, a friendly and I think Helsinki, wasn't it, on a, on a pitch that really a squad going to a Euro shouldn't have had to be playing on, you know, so close to the tournament. I mean, asking for trouble, but, but the actual football, I mean, there's just nobody able to put a foot on the ball and it's just like a sort of mad game of pinball. And of course you, it's easy when you look at the, the the way the lineup changed through that um, tournament, you know, it looks like Graham Taylor is struggling for an idea. You know, he's got a, a squad with several problems uh, he's having to find compromise options, but you know he's having to he's trying to find a different compromise option each time, and, and none of them look all that appealing. I mean, you know Keith Curl having to play, um, you know out of position at fullback in the first game, and I think he got booked really early, which meant he was just you know he was he had an awful time after that. They tried to go to a sort of a sort of three at the back, and that that didn't really work, and you know I think. I think in the second game, you know, he, he sort of put Carlton Palmer in a sort of, you know, sort of defensive position. But no offence to Carlton Palmer. You know, he's, he's not friends Beckenbauer as a player, was he? No. And so, you know, yes, there were a lot of mitigating factors, but the team didn't play well. And and frankly, once Sweden got at them, they, they really folded, didn't they? I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was 2-1, obviously, but... Um, that team playing that way was, was not going to not going to do anything in the semi-final, um, and I think that's probably where the kind of hostility from the press came from because the, the evidence of your eyes was that this was not the England team of, of just two years ago. We all remembered, you know, the the um, heroic failure of Turin. Well, this was just failure, really. Yeah, I mean, the, obviously you mentioned there the the media where this this was where it all maybe began but it it wasn't just on him which is what i as soon as i began reading this i thought this this is horrendous obviously the the sun had run the the headline but there were journalists whilst whilst he was in sweden with the team doing his job back home 
there were journalists not breaking into his house, but but finding their way into his house to basically doorstep his wife. And I think it was and and his um, his mother as well. And that was, I think, where where he really thought this this is sort of over the line. I, I, to be fair, I think that was the following summer when I, oh. went, I mean it was it was it was it got pretty disastrous, didn't it? Because the 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 World Cup qualifying campaign for USA '94. I mean it was going okay, wasn't it? It was going okay. I mean they 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 got stunned in the first game against Norway. They were leading, and then Rechtal hit one from you know out of the blue, and they dropped uh, they dropped the point there. Um, then I think they were two 0 up against the Netherlands, and ended up 2-2 and they went to Norway for the away game uh, just before this tour to the USA which was you know supposed to be kind of like the, the, the pre-World Cup recce you know go and yeah. experience the stadiums go and you know check out the, where they'd be training check out the hotels and all this um, but they had to go and play obviously Norway in a qualifier a crucial qualifier June 93 and I mean they lost 2-0 and again you know Graham was criticised for lots of things in his career, you know, um, you know, dropping Paul Gascoigne for the game in Dublin uh, in the previous campaign, for example. Uh, you know, he, he was criticised for playing Lee Sharp at wing back, you know, or left back rather. And and you know, he would Graham would have always said, look, I was I was going for a sort of solid three man defence with you know Pallister, Walker, and Adams, and then two fullbacks and wing backs, Dixon and Sharp. I wasn't playing Lee Sharp, one of the best wingers in England as a defender. I was playing him as a, you know, as a wing back, but you know, the subtleties of that were lost because the result was, you know, well, the performance was poor and the result was dreadful. They lost two nil and suddenly world cup qualification was, you know, really in the balance and straight off the back of that, they went to the U S and lost two nil to the United States who, okay, they ended up having a decent world cup, uh, you know, as hosts, as, yeah. as far as it goes, uh, you know, not a terrible team by any stretch, but but no great shakes. Um, and that was when, you know, the, it wasn't the football reporters that Graham really ever had the trouble with. You know, he could handle the team being dismantled by a football journalist or his tactics being dismantled or, you know, the criticism from football journalists who were watching the matches. It was more the kind of the, the news type journalists who were, and, yeah. and often a lot of them were freelancers as well, you know, going to, you know, saying that they work for the sun or whatever. But, you know, really freelancers, I, I imagine many of them just trying to flog a story. Um, yeah. But like you say, Graham's wife in the supermarket thinking, well, I, I can't, you know, be, knowing she's being followed around by somebody who's trying to take pictures, thinking, well, I can't go anywhere near the root vegetables because they'll have a field oh. day. You know, if I pick up a swede or a turnip or, a, you know, whatever or anything, you know, just just a sense that they were being hemmed in. And I think the thing that came across was that back then, you know, early 90s, the Premier League had only just started. The money was beginning to kind of increase in football, but it hadn't, you know, the football hadn't pulled the lever on the, you know, the jackpot just yet. And football managers and football players, uh, they still lived relatively normal lives. They lived in normal places. They didn't live in kind of detached, gated communities with, uh, you know, I mean, we see now, don't we? Yeah. You know, play, players have trouble. Um, you know, they're targeted for by criminals and what have you. I mean, you know, that's completely different. Uh, issue of course but you know Graham Taylor lived in his community and so um, people knew who Rita Taylor was and uh, and so um, it was it was 
it was hard for her to have people shouting stuff in the street. You know, your your husband's a disgrace. You know, and, and this this sort of thing happened. I won't say you know super regularly, but it it happened enough to be unpleasant. Of and you know, when Graham drew the line when um, you know his elderly parents were at home. You know, off the generation where you could leave your back door unlocked and and everything would be fine. And and a sort of film crew had walked in and were trying to sort of ask questions about you know what do you think about um, you know your son's latest defeat. And he took that hard because his great phrase was you know. Um, family first except on match day you know Graham's Mm. family meant the absolute world to him um, and he just felt that you know it was unreasonable that his job as England manager would place them in the firing line Um, he said you can say what you like about me I can take it and even that wasn't quite true because some of the stuff that was said about him was, was dreadful but the the stuff that um that his that his wife had to put up with was uh yeah and just just you know no one can say that's reasonable and i think you know the journalists who covered the games you know they did so in good faith even if they were very critical but you know the person that came up with the computer generated turnip picture you know probably thought they were being incredibly funny and witty and uh, and what have you and yeah fine okay you know it's a joke but it became kind of beyond the joke i think for graham because the public a small number did uh, sort of latch onto that and you and use it against him yeah and then unfortunately next to come uh was the the netherlands away game um for qualifying for usa 94 there was the game on one hand and then there was the the channel 4 documentary on the other which uh, i kind of think had the channel 4 documentary not have been there not have happened we may not think about the that netherlands game in in the manner that we do uh it was just such a an unfortunate well they say sort of a perfect storm don't they yeah, I mean, you know, by that stage, they they had to go to the Netherlands and, and uh, the, that team, the Dutch team, were, were flipping good, weren't they? I mean, yeah. you know, it was uh, it was Koeman, Overmars, uh, Bergkamp, uh, Rijkaard, you know, it was it was a, a world class team at home in uh, in the stadium at Rotterdam, which is a, a real cauldron of, of a place. And uh, even in that, there was there was a sense of injustice, wasn't there? Because Kuman hauled down um, David Platt, wasn't it? David Platt uh, on the edge of the box. You know, I, I think you know any suggestion that it should have been a penalty, you know, I think that's pushing it a bit. But Kuman certainly should have been off the pitch for that. And then, of course, um, not long after that, he he was at the other end, having you know not been sent off standing over a free kick which uh yeah he's gonna flick one he's gonna flick one and <laughs> he did he yes. did Kuman put it in the top corner and then Bergkamp's second goal I mean yeah a terrific team goal and 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 you know the Dutch were much better than England that night um but you could see you know the the, the frustration for Graham Taylor on the on the you know, on the touchline because he was mic'd up and, um, you know, what he was saying to the fourth official um, was broadcast in that documentary. And like you say, um, would we remember that game without that footage? Uh, probably not, would we? We would we would just think, oh, well, they went difficult away game and they lost it. Yeah. Um, but actually those moments are kind of iconic, aren't they? And I mean, 
talking to Graham about why he did the film, he did it because he wanted to show people what the England manager's job was all about. He wanted to show the, the pressure. He wanted to show what a press conference uh, you know, entailed. Again, we've got to kind of detach ourselves from the current day and, and recognise that back then there wasn't the wall-to-wall Sky Sports News coverage of football, was there? No. So you didn't see what a press conference was or hear the you know, hear that how the questions were. And when you look at those press conferences, they are more combative and the questions are a bit more hostile and there's certainly a lot more, you know, energy in the room than the kind of soporific kind of stuff we get today, you know, where, okay, sometimes the managers say uh, the, the odd thing, but generally there's a sort of quite a, a distance between the journalists and the, and the, the, the managers who are speaking. Yeah, I, I mean, a sort of, uh, you know, a, not just a physical distance. I mean, there's a kind of a, you know, there's a, there's a sort of an unwritten kind of, um, you know, code, you know, a power balance, isn't there? Whereas back then, the power balance was all with the, the Fleet Street Press, who felt like they were entitled to ask whatever they wanted in however way they wanted to ask it. And Graham was given the opportunity to kind of shelve that documentary. And, you know, once it had been made and say, look, no, I don't want it to go out. But he stuck by his initial decision, which was to, you know, um, give them permission. He didn't make any, many cuts. I think he he regretted not getting some of the language toned down because, you know, he made the point that, you know, the swearing was kind of football's industrial language. Yeah. But the man in the street, the woman in the street, and, he, you know, he said that certainly the people at the church that he attended were like, you know, your language was not, he felt embarrassed by that, and um, um, and and I I don't think he he needed to, given you know what, what we kind of know about you know I, you know we, we, football is not a, an environment you know where where people are necessarily standing on ceremony, are they? The, the the niceties do go out the window a bit, um, but people hadn't been exposed to that; they didn't know, they didn't. You know, so um, he bore the brunt of kind of opening the windows and 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 uh, letting people see what it was like. But I think you know when you compare that documentary to the to the ones that are so kind of popular and and so talked about now. I mean, now they feel so sterilised and sterile, don't they? Sort mm. of everything's everything's kind of watered down and filtered and 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 edited in such a way that that even the things that make people look you know slightly you know, controversial or bad, they feel like they've just been just, you know, we're, we're looking off from the side. Whereas I think that was a real raw documentary that took us to the heart of, of, of a man striving to achieve something that he would have been the pinnacle of his career, leading his country to a World Cup and, and the disappointment, the crushing disappointment of not managing to do that. Yeah, no, it's it, it's a real real insight into how how football was then um it's, it's such an interesting documentary if, if people haven't seen it um but obviously from from that qualification to the world cup in in 1994 was gone and it, there was only really sort of resignation left on the table and the fa the fa took them up on it yeah i mean they 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 went to san marino Again, you know, that was an odd one, wasn't it? Because yeah. I think it would have been the first tournament that San Marino or one of the very first tournaments that those real tiny principalities were involved in the qualifiers. And San Marino being played in Bologna, I think it was, 
and England go one nil down straight from the kickoff. <laughs> and and the thing that uh, you know we see Graham's reaction in the film, the documentary. It's called An Impossible Job, and I think you can probably find it on on YouTube still these days. Yeah. Um, you know the big phrase, "Do I not like that?" You know, <laughs> um, but the the one thing Graham said about that match against San Marino was that he sat on the bench. Stuart Pearce, I think, makes the mistake with the back pass straight from the kickoff. And the the San Marino striker, who was, you know, sort of an Italian fourth or fifth division level player, uh, breaks through and and puts it in the net. And Graham just said, at that moment, I just thought, what? You know, I looked to the sky and I said, you know, I'm not, God, I am not a bad man. What have (laughs) I done to deserve this? You know, and I think he was, he, yeah, they won 7-1, but it was, it was a futile um, result because they couldn't qualify, and uh, he had no choice. He had to offer his resignation, and I, I you know, I, he would never have been able to to have carried on. But it meant that, yeah, uh, England didn't go to the 1994 World Cup, and you know, for yeah, I mean, I don't remember 74 or 78, but I know the significance of missing a World Cup was, was you know, every bit as kind of monumental then. But it's for some reason in 94. English football was kind of picking itself up out of the, the doldrums of the hooliganism of the 80s. Uh, and the, the pride had been restored to a degree. And, and to miss out on the World Cup, I mean, it was a real sting for, for, the, for you know, the, the country's sort of footballing pride, wasn't it? Yeah. And he tortured himself. He, he watched the whole tournament, um, by all accounts, mm. during that summer. Um, I, I guess it's his job or it's within his job remit and that but um yeah just kind of thing oh, don't do that to yourself yeah i mean he's, he's kind of his instinct i suppose was you know take himself off to you know i don't know caribbean or somewhere you know because he said the one thing with the world cup is where do you go to avoid it you know yes. that's you know everybody does watch the world cup and, and he thought well even if i go to the caribbean it'll be on you know People will know who I am. You know, British holidaymakers, English holidaymakers will be in places. I don't want to be out on my holidays, you know, looking like I'm, I haven't got a care in the world where this is actually the thing that's hurt me the most uh, in my professional life. So he, he did sort of want to, yeah, he did put himself through it. He says he watched. I mean, he told me this story at uh, at his house. We were stood in the garden and um, he said, I I'd, uh, I think he was living at a different house, but, you know, the, the, the image is still uh, strong in my mind. Uh, but he said, I'd, I'd just go out in the garden between the matches and I'd just sort of roll a football around with the sole of my foot and, you know, tap it against the wall or tap it against the, the fence and, and just alone with my thoughts and then, you know, puff myself up and go in and watch the next game, whatever that, whatever that was. And, yeah, like you say, um, tortured himself really because every time he saw Norway he thought well that should be us or every time he saw the Netherlands he thought well that should be us and uh, yeah what what, I mean for somebody whose entire kind of um, professional um, ambition and and identity was built around the fact first of all that he was the England manager the fact that he was unable to be successful as England manager did hurt him significantly and that kind of he felt was held against him for a little while 
in the fact that he uh, it took him a little while to to get another job. But he, another one came along, uh, and he went to Wolves. Uh, lasted a season and a half there, but never really felt at home uh, until mm. he did go home, as, as it were, when he when he went back to Watford and and just as he'd done before, took him up to the uh, the top flight again, which now was the uh, the Premier League. Extraordinary, really, isn't it? And and like you say, yeah, the, the England job did carry him around. Carry, sorry, it did follow him around for a while. I mean, I think it's in the book, but if it isn't, it's certainly on the record that. Um, you know, the, the turnip um, nickname stuck with him. Uh, yeah. The son certainly didn't let it go. And uh, he and his agent, Ian Wilson, had to go into the offices of the son and say, look, this is this is causing me professional harm. You need to, you know, you need to drop this or we're going to take action. Um, he ended up writing a column, of course, for the son. And his rationale for that was like, well, if they're going to talk like that about me, I might as well take their money. Um, so, um, you know, he was not without a sense of humour about things to a point. When he was the Wolves manager, he, of course, had Jack Hayward's money to spend. There was an awful lot of pressure. Um, the club had been out of the top flight for coming up to 12 years, I think. You know, they'd been down as low as the fourth division as well. And they were kind of the sleeping giants of what is now the championship. And um, he did build a good team there, spent a lot of money, but uh, they missed out in the playoffs. And then the following season, he said, you know, there may be one or two players that he didn't refresh quickly enough and uh, they didn't get off to a good start. And uh, yeah, he was, well, sacked officially for the only time in his career, I think. Right. Um, Yeah, I think so. So um, then he really was out of the game thinking, well, where next? Because... It hasn't worked at Wolves. Who's going to come along? You know, it wasn't even as if Wolves were a Premier League club, you know. So uh, Watford was, to a degree, a sort of saviour for him. They were struggling at the bottom end of that same division when they sacked Glenn Roder towards, uh, well, I think it's February 96. Graham went in initially as kind of a firefighter to try and keep them up. They didn't actually stay up, although they had a very good go at it, scored a lot of goals. It was like the the good times had mm-hmm. come back again. I think there was a 6-3 and a 4-2 and a couple of 4-4s. You know, it was a real kind of old Graham Taylor style. Well, look, if we're going to go down, we're at least going to have a go. It was sort of four forwards and all hands on deck to try and uh, get themselves out of trouble. They went down on the uh, the final day when they lost to Leicester. And then the club was in a bit of a mess. Uh, it needed a lot of things sort of regenerating and refreshing uh, that have been let slip since uh, he'd not been there the first time around. So in the 10 years, of the, the, you know, 10 years of decline, really, to arrest. But he stepped upstairs initially as a kind of general manager to kind of look after all of that stuff. And then when Elton John then came back, uh, he Graham Taylor got back in the dugout and they won the second division title. They then won the first division playoff final against Bolton Wanderers to get back into the Premier League. And uh, although they didn't stay up in the Premier League, you know, it was it was incredible, really, because I think most Watford supporters, myself included, thought, well, you know, the, the Premier League ship has completely sailed and, uh, you know, we haven't got a ticket. But uh, Graham Taylor re-established the club as a kind of, a, once again, you know, anything above sort of halfway up the championship is... Um, considered the good times I think for Watford supporters it was then though that I think sort of he realized that the Premier League had changed the game that he sort of 
grew up with and being at, at Lincoln and Watford and, and Villa mm. um, and then decided right I think it is time I uh, I retire from this and and he he retired and and then he we'd hear him on, on the likes of Five Live where I I very much remember listening to him mm. well yeah he I mean he initially retired as Watford manager and then sort of 15 months later was tempted out of retirement by Aston Villa. And I think he thought he could work his magic there again. He had a full season with Villa and, uh, you know, they were kind of hovering above the relegation zone in the Premier League. And I think there he realised the agents have too much say that the manager no longer runs the club from top to bottom. You know, he was older as well. And perhaps, um, you know, his methods didn't resonate quite so readily with young players who perhaps weren't prepared to sort of fall into line and do it Graham Taylor's way or, you know, or, or, or it's the highway. He certainly couldn't insist that players lived within a certain radius of the ground, which yeah. is what he'd done all the way through his club career to try and build that sense of uh, everybody being, you know, on the doorstep. And I mean, he told a story about having signed Peter Crouch from, I think he must've been, Queen's Park Rangers maybe somewhere certainly somewhere down south anyway okay. and um, you know it, it, sort of the, the, the problem of uh, you know, Peter Crouch a very tall man mm. uh, squeezing himself into some kind of sports car to drive <laughs> a couple, couple of hours into training every day and a couple of hours back again and just thinking this is not you know I'm not having a go at Peter Crouch here no. in any sense but you know just a sense foreign players who would come over and rent a place, um, uh, you know, not really giving the sense that they were here for the, you know, for the for the you know long haul. I think Graham found a lot of those aspects uh, about the Premier League, not least as well the the, the sums of money. Um, I think he found that a lot more difficult to deal with. Maybe he couldn't manage the way he wanted to manage. And uh, I, I, he again tells a bit of a story about. Um, you know, sitting in the dugout at Villa Park towards the end of that season and somebody shouting, you know, your day's gone, Taylor, you know. And he said, every club I've been at, even when they're dishing it out, they've always called me Graham. Mm. But getting called Taylor, mm, I'm not sure. This this sort of says something to me. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so he did retire for the, the final time and like you say I thought he was an excellent summariser on Five Live you know he he really understood how to convey a game that people aren't watching you know and, and talk yeah. about it in a way that made sense and, and pick up little things and sometimes I'd listen to a commentary game if I was driving to a match that I was watching you know if he was doing the lunchtime game I'd listen to the commentary and then I'd watch the highlights on Match of the Day later and, and go oh yeah you know, Graham Taylor talked about that pass uh-huh. or that bit of movement or whatever he's just He's just easy manner talking about football you know, lasted until the very end. I mean, I saw him for the final time about, what, uh, probably two, three weeks before he died, just before Christmas 2016, and then he died in uh, in the January 2017. Um, but every time, every time I met him to talk about um, something for the book, we would spend the first half an hour talking about the weekend's game or, you know, how Watford were doing or what, you know, what the, the kind of the controversy of the day was in, in the Premier League. Uh, you know, his passion for the game never left him and his ability to sort of talk about it in an interesting and surprising way. Um, you know, you talk about Graham Taylor's voice just to go back to the beginning yeah. and 
I thought I knew it so well, and yet he would always say something that kind of would surprise me, or, ah. or you know, or make me think about something in in a, in a different way. And you know, he had a few little. I won't say they're chips on his shoulder at all, but he always liked to point out that you know when people talked about you know you know Stephen Gerrard as a midfield player, you'd say, well, we had a holding midfield player like that at Watford or at Villa. You know, they didn't call them holding midfield players then that that, that held and then bombed on, you know, whatever. But we we had one, you know. Or he'd always bring up the fact that when they talk about wing backs being, you know, when they were in fashion probably still are in fashion to to a degree you know he said well we we you know we were we were doing that as well and and uh, you know he this the idea that he was this sort of long ball merchant that played one way for 25 years uh, i think is a is a bit of a fallacy you know he he did do things that were innovative in the game um it's just that to the greater wider football public the results as england manager well as we all know the results are what you get judged by Unfortunately, yes. Uh, I mean, the book, Graham Taylor, in his own words, I say it's it's what it's been out now for for about five years now. But if Watford fans and Lincoln fans and Villa fans will will have their their great memories of of Graham Taylor, and say unfortunately England fans maybe their their memories are are tarnished by various events. But I I suggest give this this book a read and and it really does sort of change change your perspective um on on how you may view Graham Taylor and from a from a personal level I, I only met him once and had a a 5 minute chat with him and i think probably even back then when was that 2012 during the the euros there i, I thought you know what that the impression maybe i had as a younger teenager when all this was going on um i my my view totally changed just by meeting him yeah i i i mean i think a lot of people who had any dealings with graham would say he was a a very um decent person you know he did create a bond with supporters he would reply to people's letters and he'd sometimes call people up if they'd written Mm. a critical letter and he'd say well look okay let's talk about it you know he always tried to look after his players and his um, their families. Um, but, you know, he was quite a ruthless football man as well. You know, the team came first and uh, there was no such thing as kind of a, as a friendship that, that um, you know, would be exempt from, you know, uh, I don't know, a player being left out of a team or, a, or a, a coach being replaced or whatever. You know, he was, a, he was somebody who put the needs of the team and before everything and uh yeah but he did so i think in a in a fair way and you i I think we witnessed this when he did uh, pass away you know the number of people who um had a story about you know graham taylor just being a decent human being you know for them in perhaps a time of difficulty or just uh just helping them away from football you know um that a player who's you know, well one that springs to mind is a, a young uh Watford player called Gifton Noel Williams who right. was I think 16 and um his girlfriend was pregnant and he was called into the manager's office Graham Taylor's office and and Gifton was you know his knees were knocking thinking oh what's going to happen here am I going to get in trouble and uh Graham said look you're only on an apprentice salary it's going to be tough isn't it you haven't really got the the money to you know do everything you need to do and, and graham out of his own pocket lent gifton 
some money and said, oh. there you go. That's what you, you know, get everything you need for the baby. Um, here you go. And, uh, yeah, Gifton Noel Williams never for, never forgot that, you know. And uh, I think it's things like that that are somebody's legacy, perhaps more than conceding a first-minute goal away at San Marino. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's a uh, that's a nice way to round off. Um, it's it's been I've really enjoyed that, Lionel. Thank you very much for your time that you've given us there. I mean, just from your for your own personal side, what what are you are you working on anything at this moment in time? Well, I'm not a football journalist, um, really. I'm a cycling journalist, and okay. I, uh, I I I run the cycling podcast. Yeah, so that that kind of takes a lot of my time, but uh, so I'm, I kind of quite enjoy now just being a, a football supporter and, um, and and watching my own team and, and my non-league teams. Um, but I don't, uh, I've never really covered the game. I've written a lot about uh, Watford, my club, and I've written the odd um, football book unrelated to Watford. Um, and you know, the opportunity to do Graham's autobiography really was the result of. Um, I guess a bit of luck, a bit of happenstance and a bit of circumstance. And uh, I'm very, very grateful that I got that opportunity. Many thanks go to Lionel Burney there. Graham's autobiography is called In His Own Words. It's published through Peloton Publishing. It's available wherever you buy your books from. Or your local library, I guess, too. Uh, You can follow Lionel on Twitter, at Lionel Burney, L-I-O-N-E-L-B-I-R-N-I-E. And if cycling is your thing, he mentioned the cycling podcast there at the end, you can find that at Cycling underscore podcast thank you very much as always for listening and as i said at the beginning the show is on all the socials go give it a find a like a follow feel free to say hello i'll be back with you very soon with some more england content so until then take care cheers